this semester we're doing the book of Colossians. And what Paul is addressing to that church is they were struggling with essentially this idea. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus sufficient for all of life? Because what happened was there are these teachers in the church at this point in time that were teaching a Jesus plus gospel. You know, life is just really complex, really big, and, uh, and there's, there's just more to it. Jesus doesn't kind of answer all the questions. Um, there, are more que- there are more answers and there are more sources we need to search for the answers. And um, all semester, what our theme will be, because what Paul does to the church at Colossae is over and over again is he turns their gaze back upon the person of Jesus. And his overarching point and our point for the whole semester seems simplistic, but it's a very it's both simple and complex point. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. So with that in mind, what we're going to do is read verses chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, last couple of weeks, we read Paul's introduction, um, the things he's happy about seeing in the church at Colossae, and then the things that he's praying for for them. And this begins the body of his letter, but he begins the body of his letter in a unique way that he doesn't always do. He begins it with, with what's often called the Christological hymn. The Christological hymn is the hymn about Christ. If there are five verses in the Bible that I think would be the most valuable five verses to memorize, it would be these five. It's the most concise statement about everything that Jesus is. And that's what we're reading tonight. It's an interesting way that he starts his letter. He says, I'm thankful for things going on with you all, and here are the things I'm praying for, and here's next. Verse 15. He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He would be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Your Word again, and we thank You for His testimony concerning Jesus. And I pray now as we consider His sufficiency and His supremacy, dear God, that our distracted minds and our hardened hearts, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, you would crack them open and we would begin to get a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus really is. We are hopeless unless you work in us. Work in us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, May of 2008, my little sister graduated from Furman University down the road. And... um, in January, she called us and she said, y'all want to come to my graduation? I need to know. Now, why do we need to know if we're going to come to a graduation in January? Well, that's because they had a very uh, special graduation speaker. Uh, President, Then sitting President George Bush was, spoke at their graduation. And regardless of your political opinions, I'm, uh, I'm not really a fan of the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians, so um, if you're here long enough, you'll hear me dog them all. Um, I'm a monarchist, but anyways, that's another story. (laughs) But I feel like that's more scriptural. Um, (laughs) Anyways, uh, we had the opportunity to see President Bush, and 
I was like, well, yeah, chance to see the president? Absolutely. And uh, so she um, got us a reservation. And the weeks leading up to it, many of you know us, so we were talking about it, and we're, oh, we're going to go see President Bush talk. And um, we found babysitters, you know. We paid people money to keep our kids so we could do it. That day, we got all dressed up. We sat in that sun in a tie and in long pants so we could look nice and all that kind of stuff. We talked about it beforehand. We showed up hours beforehand and went through the degrading process of the, like, the security thing where they empty out your pockets and people get frisked and you dump out your purse and all that kind of stuff. And got there hours beforehand and watched the snipers come up in the towers all around. And I mean, it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty impressive. And, um, and we sat in that sun and we sweated and it was miserable all for a 30-minute glimpse at the most powerful man alive at that time. And we talked about it for, for weeks afterwards, about seeing President Bush, what President Bush said, and all that kind of stuff. And what's, what Paul's doing here is he's reflecting on the way Elizabeth and I reacted to President Bush, namely this. Paul is recognizing that when we encounter something that is supremely powerful, we by nature change. Our lives wrap itself and define itself by that encounter with that thing that is supreme. When you encounter someone or something that is supreme, that is peerless, that is without any competition, that's the best. Ryan Bowen is talking right now about a game that he's going to get to see Kobe Bryant play in months from now. Because, to him, Kobe Bryant is supreme. This principle is true in all of our lives. Namely, when you encounter perfect superiority, when you encounter supremacy, it changes you. And that's the principle Paul is relying on and using now. He's speaking to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, believing and understanding the supremacy of Jesus changes you. We get that in every other aspect of life. You don't even have to be taught that principle. When you encounter perfection, when you encounter perfect art, when you encounter the most brilliant artists, the most brilliant minds, whatever the areas you're interested in, it changes you. You'll pay tons of money. You'll dress up for it. You'll talk about it for weeks. You'll obsess over it. When we encounter supremacy, we're changed by it. And you see, the frustration with Christianity is that Jesus doesn't impress us. Jesus often doesn't impress us. We have, in a lot of ways, a low view of Christ. There are kind of a couple of different ways I think we often view Christ. And the first one is we have a casual Jesus, right? The casual Jesus is the Jesus that agrees with us when we're right, and it's the Jesus that looks away when we're doing whatever we want to do that happens to not disagree with us, that happens to disagree with His Word. The casual Jesus... It's happy when you impatch you on the back, when you read your Bible, when you go to church. But when you do the things you want that he speaks against, he's quiet. And we're kind of comfortable having him be casual because that's not a friend, that's an acquaintance. Acquaintance is somebody who's pleasant to be around but never is going to challenge you. So in a lot of ways, oftentimes that's how we can relate to Jesus. We like the good parts. Let's pretend like the bad parts don't exist. And if it's not the casual Jesus then oftentimes what we also have is we have a genie and a bottle Jesus. And the genie and the bottle Jesus is when you need something, you read your Bible, you pray, you rattle your bones, you essentially perform witchcraft and hope that Jesus will give you what you want. So when you're in need, when things are bad, those are the times when you want Jesus. And what's, also, what's interesting about the genie and the bottle Jesus is when things are good and things are going your way, you don't really need Jesus. 
And so sometimes that's the way we relate to him. The other thing is, there's also the Jesus in the witness stand. Jesus' primary role is to answer our questions about the things he's allowed to happen. Why did you let this happen? He's somebody that his role is someone to complain to and to be angry at. So it's either the casual Jesus, the genie in the bottle, Jesus on the witness stand, or lastly, maybe a combination of those things, but maybe lastly, the quiet time Jesus. And this is the Jesus that's just been relegated to a compartment to one part of our life. His role is relegated to this kind of ethereal, spiritual, abstract part of our day during our quiet time. And we like him there. But when we close our eye, when we open our eyes, rather, and step out into the world, he has little to do with the concrete tasks that are before us every day. When we step out of our prayers and out of our quiet time, he's compartmentalized to those times. And certainly there are more ways we've relegated Jesus to tiny roles in our lives, but in a sense, is it any wonder that our spiritual lives are empty, that we feel weak, that we struggle with unbelief, that we have so little peace, that there's so much anxiety and security, if this is the way we think about the person who is supreme. Because when we begin to understand His supremacy, when you encounter the preeminence of Christ, it changes you. And tonight in this text, we see that He is supreme. Paul puts on display His supremacy in two particular Areas that really, in a lot of ways, actually encompass everything. That he is supreme in creation, but he's also supreme in new creation. He's supreme in creation, but also in new creation. The first thing Paul sets out to say, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The first thing Paul is saying is this he is the image of God. The word there is the word icon. It's where we get the word icon. And what's being communicated here is not Jesus is similar to, he's a lot like, he points us towards God. What Paul is saying is this, when you look at Jesus, you see God. Because that's exactly what Jesus says to the disciples in John 14. If you have seen me, this is what he says, if you have seen me, you've seen God. If you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. The way Paul also says it in verse 19, For in Him all the fullness, not some of the fullness, not even the fullness, but all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is called the doctrine of incarnation, that everything that is God, all of the fullness of Him, was in, is in, and will always be in the person of Jesus. If you want to understand God completely, look At Jesus, we call this the incarnation, God putting all of himself into the form of a man. And the way Calvin talks about it, I think, is really neat. He calls it an accommodation on God's part. And you see, we actually understand this principle of incarnation or accommodation intuitively. It's something that I do every single day, and Elizabeth does every single day. Every single day, I interact with my two-year-olds and my four-year-olds, and the way I interact with them is not the way I interact with Elizabeth or with y'all. I get down on their level and I talk in words they understand. That's what the incarnation is. God comes down in our level and He talks in words we understand. And you know what? When I get down on my kids' level and I talk in words they understand, it's still fully and completely me. That's what the incarnation is. It's God's accommodating. 
us. Now, what does this mean? What is, what, what's kind of the application for this understanding of this point? First of all, and a pastor in Chattanooga, Joe Novenson, really helped me kind of see this. Uh, and, and he put these together. He said this, when you see Jesus weep over the death of Lazarus, you learn something about God. When you see Jesus take off his clothes, put a robe around, put a towel around his waist and get on the ground and wash the feet of a bunch of people who attended his small group Bible study for three years and never understood a word he was saying, you learn something about God. When you see Jesus have dinner with prostitutes, you're seeing God. When you see Jesus stand silent in the face of false accusations that will cost him his life, you're learning about God. You've learned something about God. He is God. He's the firstborn of creation. This is the next thing Paul says. And what he means, this can mean one of two things. Sometimes it means birth order, but other times it means significance. In the same way, and what Paul is clear to, uh, in this context is that it doesn't mean firstborn, that Jesus was created. It means that he is most significant over creation. Psalm eighty nine twenty seven. I will make him firstborn, the highest, meaning the highest of the kings of the earth, meaning supreme over the kings. It's not a statement of birth order. It's a statement of supremacy. And we know this because of the rest of the passage is committed to Paul explaining how Jesus is not created. He is the creator. He is God. He is the image of God. He is the fullness of God, but he is also creator. Verse 16, by him, all things were created. Verse 17, all things were created through him. Paul wants to be clear about what he means. So he explains the things that are in heaven and the things that are on earth the things that we can see, and the things that we can't see. Now, why does he say that? He says that because we're quite comfortable with having a God that stays invisible and deals with the invisible things. We like him there. It's nice when he stays there. But to say that he's created all the concrete, to say that he's created our lungs, to say that he's created our cell phones and our clothes and your apartment, that he's the person that shaped the face that is on you, all of a sudden means God is up in our business all the time. This means you can't open your eyes and not see something that is His. You can't do it. You can't look back in your life and see anything that wasn't His. When you get this, when we begin to understand everything you're looking right at right now is Jesus's, it was made by Him and it was made for Him, you know what happens? We become really thankful people. And one of the ways Paul describes spiritual maturity in Ephesians 5.20 is this. When the Spirit works in you, you give thanks for everything. You look around, it's all from Jesus. And you're grateful for it all. If you've ever seen, have you ever seen a homeless person have a really moment? If you're in Five Points or Vista or whatever, you encounter these people in the street and they ask you for money. And on a couple of occasions, this is not me as a saint, this is actually me more operating out of guilt. I didn't have change. I opened my wallet and there's only a 20 there. Have you ever given a homeless guy a 20? That's a really moment. It's, oh, oh my gosh, really? Really, man, really? Really, man, really? Really? That's us all the time when we begin to understand this is God's creation. All of it is His. Really? Really? He says, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities... 
at the church at Colossae, the teachers were teaching that, you know, there's Jesus, but there are also these angelic beings and they can do beings and they can do so much for you. And he's listing the angelic order. And he's saying, even that, it's all about Jesus. It's all his. He is God, he is creator. He is also the sustainer of all creation. In verse 17, in him all things hold together. You see, we're kind of prone to deism. What deism is, is, you know, God created the world, He wound it up, and He stepped back. And He only kind of gets involved in those, like, super necessary moments when, like, seas have to be parted, you know? That's not the picture Paul's painting here. In Him, all things hold together. Now, we think of God as being involved in the big things, you know, like when tsunamis come and when Twin Towers crash, we talk about God a lot being involved in those events. That's not what Paul's talking about. God is certainly involved in those events. God's talking, Paul's talking about all things. The tiniest details of our life he is holding together. It means the intricate details of your daily life are sustained by God. He's in control in the best moments and in the worst moments. And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. What part of your life do you think Jesus doesn't have control over? In Him, your whole life is held together right now. He is at work in this room in everybody's life, holding it, all of it together. Not some of it, not the good parts, all of it. We are full of anxiety and fear because we believe God doesn't have control. How much rest have you lost by believing that you're holding your life together? That steals rest and it gives so much anxiety and fear. How much of your life do you think you're holding together? The message of Scripture is that He's in control of the tiniest details of our life, the good ones and the bad things, and He's working all those things, the good ones and the bad ones, to the good of His children. Even bad things will be used for the good of His children. And if you're not sure that He can do that, look at the crucifixion. The worst thing ever was the thing God used to save the world. He can use bad stuff to do good things. That's how powerfully sovereign He is. He's, a, he's God, He is creator, He's sustainer, and lastly, He is the purpose of creation. Verse 16, all things were created through Him and for Him. One of the other ways that God talks about all things is in Ephesians 1 is when He says that He works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we, His people, who hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. God, in Ephesians 1, says He works all things together for the good of His people. But in here we see that all things are for Him and for to the praise of His glory. Now, are these two separate ideas? God's saying creation is all about Him, Saving his, working things together for the good of his people, but he says all of creation is really about him. I don't think these are two separate ideas. The way in which God chooses to be glorified is by showering love on his people. And the purpose of him loving his people is his own glory. The purpose of creation is God's glory. And the essence of sin is that we hijack that purpose and we seek our own glory in creation apart from Him. And in our pursuit for our own glory and making ourselves the purpose of creation, the ironic, the tragically ironic thing is that we lose everything. 
There are going to be some thrills that last for a short while, but ultimately if the purpose of your life is you and your happiness and your security and your anxiety and your approach to all of life is, I've got to get these things for me, you will scrounge and you will fight and eventually you actually cease, seek to dull that longing and to numb that longing because it will tyrannize you until eventually you break. You break. Your sense of significance that you're seeking in all the things of this world is too weighty for the things of this world to handle. When things, when we use our lives for what they're not intended for, when things are not used according to their purpose, they break. We buy flashing uh, Tinkerbell magic wands by the case at our house. And flashing Tinkerbell magic wands are for performing magic, right? Fairy magic. Everybody knows this, right? They're not for hammering things. And yet, our girls think that they serve that dual purpose. Sometimes they're performing fairy magic and sometimes they're for hammering. You know what happens when you use them for things they're not supposed to be used for? They break. You know what happens when your whole life is oriented towards yourself? It breaks. We call it death. When you begin to use things the way they're intended to use, there's joy. There's much fairy joy in our backyard. (laughs) Y'all, we act like beggars who are trying to get ours. One of the other things our girls do is they go in the playroom and they hoard their toys. And they'll walk around and they'll hold ten toys because they want them to be theirs. You know, and they want the girls to know it's not for them. They're they're mine. And one of the things Elizabeth and I do, this is like one of those fun, kind of terribly fun parent moments, where we go like, Mary Walton Shelby, they're not yours. They're mine. And I want you to enjoy them. We're walking around like beggars trying to get ours. And here in Scripture, the reality is the king is saying, come into my house, sit at my table, eat my food, stop fighting and trying to get yours. I want to share with you all that I have. It's mine. I want you to enjoy it. When your identity is first and foremost in Jesus, that you are Jesus. He is your creator. He is your sustainer. And He is the purpose of your life. Everything comes together. Here's the question. If you are Jesus's, if you are Jesus's, how does that change the way you think about school? If above all things, you're Jesus's, how does that change the way you think about all of your friendships? If above all things, you're Jesus's, how does that change all of your fears? If above all else, if you're Jesus's, how does that change how you think about sex? The list goes on. If you're Jesus's, how does that change the way you think about anything? And you see, all those things aren't wiped away. God made us for all those things. But rather, they're approached from a totally different perspective because instead of the approach being, I've got to get mine, the approach is, you receive them as beautiful gifts from Jesus. And as long as you believe Jesus is insufficient to be everything for you, even though He is the Creator and He is the Sustainer and He is the purpose of creation, as long as you believe He's still insufficient, then you're going to do whatever you want and you'll never be happy. And you'll break. Jesus is the king. He is supreme in creation. But his supremacy doesn't just stop there. Paul goes on to tell us he's also supreme in new creation. 
the first thing he tells us to begin to get at that is verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. I have a lot of conversations with people. It's what I do. And uh, one of the things we all struggle with, me included, is um, those times of spiritual dryness where you feel distant from God. And so I have a lot of those conversations with people. And what's interesting is there's a large percentage of people who come to me and they don't feel God. And they're, they're questioning things and they're struggling to feel any spiritual vitality. And a large number of the people that come to me with that question, with that struggle, there's actually one thing many of them have in common. They don't tr- participate in the life of God's church. See, Jesus is the head, and he's not saying he's the head of you as an individual. Jesus doesn't say that. He's the head of the body, the church, the corporate body of believers that, according to the Bible, is not just a small group Bible study. It's not some people that get together and like Jesus. That's not the church. In Scripture, God talks about how there are officers in the church. There are men who have authority in the church, elders and deacons. There are things you do in the church, like hear the preaching of the Word on the Lord's Day. There are things that are part of the body of the church, like the sacraments that we take together. We go to the Lord's table and feast together. The church is not a couple of well-intentioned Christians hanging out together, according to Scripture. And Jesus is the head of that. He is the head of the church. And people wonder... When they, why, when they refuse to be a part of the body, why they feel as if they have no life or direction. Jesus is the head of the church. The head gives life and direction. When you separate yourselves from the church, why? it's obvious why you feel like you don't feel Jesus. So what's a brief application of this? This is like one of the not fun ones, right? Join a church. Join a church. RUF is not the church. If anything, what RUF, our goal for RUF is actually your senior year, you kind of cycle out and become more and more active in a local church. RUF is an arm of the church for the purpose of bringing actually y'all in to the church. And if you stick around here for a couple of years and you don't find yourself growing in a love for and an involvement in the local church, you haven't heard anything we said. Tuesday night's not the church. If you got one hour a week to do something Jesus-y, you're not welcome at RUF. And I get it. You have legitimate complaints about the church. You know, I struggle with pride. I'm better at complaining about the church than most of y'all. I am. But I know that you have legitimate real complaints about churches. And I'm one of the reasons you have those complaints. Because you know those arrogant people in the church? When I joined it, I add the arrogance level. It got a little bit higher when I joined it. I'm part of the problem with the church. You're complaining against the church is legitimate because I know myself. I kind of know myself. When you walk into the church, guess what? You added to all the problems in the church. And there's no more arrogant place to be than to stand out of the church and point and say, I don't want to be a part of that. Look at all those people and their issues. One pastor said it this way, Jesus loved the church enough to die for it. Can you maybe like the church enough to be patient with it. The church is the new humanity of God's work of new creation. When you begin to understand that, you go and you love the church. You love the church. Join a church. Join a church for whom Christ is the head. 
Don't go to just any church. Go to a church that on Sunday morning they say, Christ is everything. He is Lord. He is creator. He is our salvation. He is our sanctification. He is our hope. He is our security. Don't, unfortunately, join a church that teaches, here are five steps to financial security. If Christ is the head, then Christ is the guy who gets exalted on Sunday morning. If they're giving you five steps to make your life better, guess who's getting exalted on Sunday morning? You. It's not a church for whom Christ is the head. Join a church where Christ is the head, where Christ is preached, where Christ is exalted over and over and over again. I get it fired up about the church thing. Jesus is supreme in new creation. He is the head of the body of the church. And He's making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, for the new creation to happen, then everything that went wrong with this creation has to be wiped away. If a king is going to restore his kingdom, the first thing he has to do is destroy the evil that came into his kingdom. And for the work of new creation to happen, God has to wipe away everything that broke his creation, which is us. But God is not just a God of justice. He's also a God of mercy. And at the cross, we see how God set about destroying the evil that frustrated His creation and yet didn't destroy us. Who is the source of that evil? God made peace there by shedding the blood of Jesus in our place. Jesus was punished for our evil. And God made peace with His blood. And what that means is that we are now now, not going to be, not hopefully going to be, not if we do this right, possibly be right with God, but we are now right with God. Anybody who comes to Jesus is forgiven and is a new creation. Peace is made by Jesus' blood at the cross, not by your effort. The reason why we still wonder whether or not we're saved is because we believe that our behavior makes or breaks our relationship with God. And what Paul is saying here is that it's Jesus' behavior that makes or breaks your relationship with God. Jesus is the one who makes you right with God. The solution to your sin problem that you are struggling with is not more effort. The solution to your sin problem that you're struggling with is not more effort. When you say, I've got to get right with God, you can't. You can't. Remember the last time you said it? I've got to get right with God. Remember the last time you said it? It didn't stick, did it? It's not going to stick this time either. The solution to your sin problem is not more effort. The principle, I've got to get right with God, is a principle that will always leave you frustrated and always insecure because it actually reflects a belief that Jesus' blood is not sufficient to make peace between you and God. And so you've got to fill in where Jesus didn't finish the task. You need to ask Jesus, Jesus, can you make me right with God? And He can. And if you're thinking, it can't be that free. It just can't be that free. If you're beginning to think that, you're beginning to understand how free it is. Because the reality of just how free God's forgiveness is should make us almost feel nervous. That's what faith is. Stepping out, trusting God for something really, really big, like possibly reconciliation with Him that's offered freely. That Jesus makes you right with God by His blood and all your best works when you hand to Him are incredibly insufficient and never will be enough. And when, we, when, when that begins to break in in our hearts and our minds, you know what happens? 
Jesus begins to become precious. Jesus becomes precious, and it changes you. But we're not just changed by His death for our sins, by Him making peace with His blood. The other thing Paul tells us is He is the firstborn from the dead. He is supreme in the work of new creation. And he doesn't. in that, it doesn't just mean that He dies our death, but He gives us His new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, God's plan, the way we often think about it, God's plan is not to let the physical world kind of run out and we all end up in this abstract spirit world sitting on clouds playing uh, harps, right? That sounds terrible because it is. (laughs) God's not getting rid of this physical world. He's restoring it. The new heavens and the new earth are this world made new again. And God's plan is the renewing, the making new again of the heavens and the earth. Verse 20 talks about how His reconciliation is not just dealing with our moral guilt between us and God, but He's reconciling to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This is one of the many pictures where He's saying, I'm restoring not just y'all, but all of creation. I'm making it back like it was supposed to be. And first and foremost, among that restoration is the new humanity, the new people. A restored humanity, a resurrected humanity. And Jesus is supreme in the new humanity, the new creation, and the new heavens and the new earth, displayed in the fact that He is the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is in dominion even over death. And He shows that in His resurrection. He's supreme in creation. He's supreme in new creation even over death because He's supreme in redemption. Here's a question for tonight, y'all. What is supreme for you? We all have a collection of things, of hopes, of peoples, of tactics um, that rival our affection for Jesus. And from far away, they look like they're sufficient to give you significance. For from a couple of years out, you're looking at marriage and thinking, that's it. That'll be it. That'll be sufficient for you. Statistically, I know at least, at minimum, 80% of the men and women in this room turn to pornography to just have that moment of rest. Your GPA, your friends, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, Credit to Adam Yates, man. When you talk to the dude about football, we all think playing Carolina football would be sufficient. Like, there's Jesus, and since we can't play football, we'll rest in Him. The dude gets that football is not sufficient. Whatever it is you're relying on, here's the question. Put it under the microscope. Does it deliver? Are you content to believe the lie that it will? When you really know it's true because you've experienced all the things you're relying on. Do you think the next test, the, ne- the GPA after this quarter, do you think these people liking you, do you think that's going to deliver this time? How long are you going to let things and so, that are so foolish and so weak and so insipid as sexuality, as body image, as pornography, as your schoolwork, as being liked by your peers, how long are you going to rely on those things? How long are you going to be committed to being unhappy and being insecure? Because Jesus stands under the microscope. Examine Him. See if He stands. See if He can deliver. 
He's supreme. He is sufficient. He made it all. He holds it all together. His glory is the purpose of it all. And when we wrecked it, He saves it all. What is keeping you from finding your all in Him? What are the shiny objects that are distracting you? The funny thing is, creation is good and it's made to be enjoyed. And when you finally give it to Him, when you finally give to Him all your replacements of Him, and you finally find yourself in Him and find your significance in the fact that you are Jesus's, that all He has is yours, what ends up happening is you actually begin to enjoy all those things you idolize, and you enjoy them as gifts instead of hating them because you worship them as idols. Jesus is sufficient. Let's pray.